Rich Luttrell was just 18 years old back in 1967. It turned out he'd grown up in the Midwest. He'd watched all the John Wayne movies, and he felt called to serve his country. So he enlisted in the Army, and by the time he was 18, he found himself there in Vietnam. He never got to go to a high school prom. No, he'd already been trained. He was serving in the jungles of Vietnam. And it was on that day that he was going through on patrol, stepping through the mud, trying to get over the stumps. It was so hot and so muggy. He was praying to himself that he would not see the face of the enemy. He had never seen the enemy face to face before until that day. For as he was on patrol and moving through the brush, suddenly he heard a motion and instinctively he swung around and put his gun to his shoulder, only discovering that there was a Viet Cong soldier already with his gun, his AK-47, pointed straight at Rich's head. They were about 30 feet apart. He said in that kind of a moment, everything just sort of slows down. It's amazing how much you can think about, how much can happen in seconds as life suddenly moves through. Because he said, when he looked up at the soldier, we looked eye to eye. And my thought was, why haven't you killed me? You had the element of surprise. You had the drop on me. He said it was just a moment, but it seemed like eternity as they stood there looking at each other. And he said then his training kicked in and immediately he squeezed the trigger and the staccato of rifle fire broke the silence. Two other VCs stepped out and again friendly fire began to come. It was a fierce firefight. It lasted just a moment and the North Vietnamese soldiers withdrew back into the jungle. But three soldiers lay dead. One of the Americans came over and began to go through the pockets of these different soldiers who had been killed. For Rich, it was his first battle. And he'd won. Three lives had been lost. But something else had been lost. And that was his innocence. One of the soldiers pulled out a a billfold from the man that Rich had killed. And he looked at it for a moment and then he threw it to the ground. And when he threw it to the ground a picture came out of it and floated down beside it. And Rich went over and he picked up the picture and there was the picture of this soldier, this man. And beside him was a a young girl. She must have been seven, eight years old. She looked just like him. He assumed it might be his daughter. She had pigtails. Her hair was braided and looked just perfect. He looked at the picture of this father and this child. And then he stuck it in his pocket. And he carried it with him for the next 22 years. During the next 22 years, Rich would survive Vietnam. He would come home. He would get married. He would have two children of his own, two little girls. And through the years, whenever he got a new billfold, he always took out the old and put it in the new. And he always carried that picture right along with him. From time to time, he would pull out the picture and he would look at it. And he would think about this man that he had killed. And he'd think about this girl. And he said, you know, I, I, I couldn't regret what I had to do as a soldier. But I so regretted the, the consequences. He said, I thought of this young girl growing up without a father. And he said, I felt so guilty. It was overwhelming. 
And whenever he would look at the picture, it would begin to depress him, and he would feel so guilty. His wife would always say, just throw it away. Throw the picture away. There's nothing you can do about it. But he couldn't do that. Somehow he felt connected to these two, and he held on to it for 22 years until he was 40 years old. And then he had the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C., and he wanted to go there to the memorial, the Vietnam Memorial. And on the night before he was to go, he sat there in his hotel room in D.C., and he wrote a letter I wanted to read you. He would write, Dear Sir, For 22 years I have carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day we faced one another on the trail in Vietnam. Why you did not take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me for so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way that I was trained to kill VC. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture of you with your daughter, I suspect. Each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt, I have two daughters myself now. Today I visit the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in D.C. I wanted to come here for several years now to say goodbye to many of my former comrades. I truly loved many of them, as I'm sure you loved many of your former comrades. As of today, we are no longer enemies. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why I am able to be here today. It is time for me to continue the life process and relieve my pain and guilt. As I leave here today, I leave your picture with this letter. Forgive me, sir. I shall try to live my life to the fullest, an opportunity that you and many others were denied. So until we chance to meet again in another time and place, rest in peace. Respectfully, Richard A. Luttrell. He went to the wall that morning and he took his letter and he took the picture and he laid it there at the base of the wall. And he said when he laid this letter at the wall, he felt like he was laying down a heavy burden. To be laying down the guilt of so many years to ask for forgiveness and to turn and to walk into a new life. Sometimes it is so hard to deal with the past because we have all done things where others have been hurt. We have said things, we have done things that have caused pain. And we know that somehow we can't go back and change it. We can't go back and undo the things that we said and the things that we have done and the pain that we have caused. And so we feel guilt. And sometimes it's hard to figure out how do you deal with the past. What we know in this sermon series is that we're trying to look at what lies within. And we know that you can't change the past and you can't always change what's going on out there. And so what we're trying to do in this sermon series is look at what do we change within. What do we experience in our heart and mind so that we can deal with things like our guilt, our past, 
and be set free to go into the future. And so this morning, I want to continue on with the sermon series of What Lies Within. And I want us to look at this wonderful scripture this morning and our scripture lesson that is so important to us all. For it's the passage where Jesus is being crucified there on Good Friday. We know that he'd come in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, people waving their palm branches. For the next few days, he was in Jerusalem in the temple teaching. And then on Thursday, he celebrated the Passover meal, the Last Supper we would come to know. And then he was betrayed by Judas. And on Friday, all the disciples had deserted him. And he was before Pilate and pronounced to be crucified. And that Friday, suddenly Jesus finds himself on Golgotha, the skull, this hill, three crosses, a thief on each side, and Jesus in between. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks out and he sees these Roman soldiers who drove the nails in his hands. He looks out and he sees some of the religious authorities who conspired to put him there. He thinks about Pilate who passed sentence on him. He thinks about the disciples who betrayed him and deserted him. And then Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ten words. Ten words that I believe Jesus spoke not only to the Romans and the religious authorities and his disciples, but ten words that echoed down through history that I believe are spoken to each of us. Ten words that change everything. As Jesus speaks to God about us, on our behalf, Father, forgive them. It's when you and I experience the gift of God's grace that we're able to find how do we deal with the past, with the guilt, with the pain that we have caused, and how are we set free to go forward. How do we experience that? It's what I want us to think about this morning. Just three ideas. First of all, I believe you begin to prepare your heart to experience God's grace when you're willing to take responsibility for what you've done. We've got to get honest with ourselves and before God to say, this is what I have done, is how I messed up. You had two thieves on the cross and one says, look, you are the Christ, you saved others, save yourself and us. But the other thief speaks up and says, aren't you afraid of God? We are under the same sentence of condemnation and we justly so for our deeds. One thief is very clear. I know that I did wrong. And I know that I'm being punished justly for what I have done. To accept responsibility. Because sometimes we all mess up. As you know, for the last 10 days or so, I, I was gone, and I was out of the country, actually. And while I was gone, there was an event that was going on here in Oklahoma that certainly has affected, I believe, us all. It may have been about a fraternity, the SAEs, in the University of Oklahoma, but it's more than that. It's about all of us here in Oklahoma. It's certainly become a national story. When I got back home, I wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to get online and see this famous video I wanted to see what was being said by national newscasters, by all the radio pundits, by all the social media. I wanted to learn more about it. And you know, when I came home and I started trying to learn about it, one of the things that I saw was that, you know, what was said 
what was done was truly wrong on so many levels. And whenever there is prejudice, whenever those kind of things, racism rears its head, we must rise up and say something about it. Because that's fundamentally who we are as Christians and as members of the St. Luke's family of faith. Because one thing that we fundamentally believe in all people is that everybody is a child of God. That everybody deserves to be treated with respect and dignity. Even if we look different, believe differently, we believe that everybody, regardless of the color of their skin, whether they are red or brown or black or white, whether they are gay or straight or Jewish or Muslim or Christian, whether they're Republican or Democrat or cowboy or Sooner, everybody is a child of God. Even if we look at life differently, And so when we see something that is wrong, we need to speak up. But as I thought about that, something else struck me. What I thought was, I sure am glad that my worst moments have not been captured on an iPhone and put on YouTube. I'm glad that my worst moments aren't on the national news. You know, we are in a society that loves to be self-righteous. When we see something that is wrong, we need to address it. But boy, we love to become so self-righteous in the way that we do it. So judgmental and so condemning and so harsh. I looked at what TV commentators were saying and radio pundits. Does it need to be addressed? Absolutely. But oh, how much people love being so judgmental and harsh. And I couldn't help but think about Jesus whenever he confronted something that was wrong and he felt it did need to be addressed and people rose up to pass judgment and he would say, you're right, it was wrong. Now the one thing I ask you is take the log out of your own eye so you might see the speck that is in your brother's eye. Or the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, brought before a group of people and thrown down and they said, the law says stone her. She has done wrong. We need to stone her. And Jesus said, you're right. That's what the law said. She did wrong. So let him who hath no sin cast the first stone. And it says they went away, starting with the oldest. They dropped their stones and went away. You start with the oldest because we've been around a while. It doesn't take us long to remember all those things that we did. Sometimes it takes the younger people longer to remember the ways they've messed up. No, we love to be so self-righteous. And I, I really think it's fascinating that as I began reading so many people's commentaries that I thought it was people out of the African-American community who really brought the greatest insight. For several of them would write and say how, yes, this was wrong and we need to speak up. And we also want to forgive them for what they did. Because the only way to end racism is really through forgiveness. It is not judgment and being so harsh with one another. As I continued to look at it, I was also struck by the thought, yes, the fact is it was wrong, but it's not beyond forgiveness. And I think that's the thing that sometimes we all forget. You've got to accept responsibility. Accept responsibility for the things that we have done that are wrong. And we're not beyond forgiveness. And we need to be careful how we stand in judgment of others. 
it starts by saying, I did wrong. You know, you can spend a lifetime trying to hide from the things you've done that cause pain. You can spend a lifetime lying about it. You can spend a lifetime trying to cover it up. What we've got to do is get honest with ourselves before God. This is how I messed up. This is what I did. And then we say, I'm sorry. Seven simple letters. I'm sorry. And not then add an excuse. When you say I'm sorry and you add an excuse, it's the perfect way to ruin an apology. You say I'm sorry. Period. And when you say I'm sorry, understand it's not a get out of jail free card that says, well, what I did doesn't matter. I said I'm sorry. No, it does matter. But I now say I'm recognizing the fact that I caused you pain. I now understand I hurt you. So I owe you an apology. It's a debt because I hurt you. I am sorry. And we hate to say I'm sorry. It doesn't matter whether you and I are saying it to a wife or a child or a friend. We hate to say I'm sorry because it makes us feel weak, vulnerable, guilty. If I suddenly think about how I hurt you and I'm willing to acknowledge what I did, it makes me feel bad about me. But that's really where we start. I do accept the guilt. And I have to say, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. But secondly, it's to understand that no matter how broken our lives We're never beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. When we get honest about our lives, we accept responsibility. But at the same time, you've got to stop kicking yourself for the rest of your life. Because we all make mistakes. And if you keep kicking yourself and blaming yourself, being that you've made a mistake, and if all you do is kick yourself and feel guilty forever and ever, what happens is you withdraw from God. Because you start to think, how could God possibly love me? How could God possibly care about me after what I've done? And the truth of the matter is, what we need to be remembering when we're in the midst of our sense of feeling bad is that God loves us very much. We may have quit on God. God didn't quit on us. And when you remember that God cares for you, even in that moment of saying, I'm sorry, when you accept responsibility and you know you've made a mistake... That's the moment that you can start to experience grace. I've been reading a fascinating book while I was on my trip entitled uh, Miracles in the ER by Robert Leslie. Robert Leslie was uh, an ER doc for over 30 years. He worked there in in Rock Hill in South Carolina. And if you're working in ER, you can only imagine how many times you have strange things that are going to be going on. And he kept a wonderful record of some of these stories. One of the stories he tells about was a kid named Tony Brooks, um, Tony Bridges. Tony Bridges was a, um, was a kid who, who just seemed to have a knack for getting into trouble. He was 14 years old when Dr. Leslie first met him. It turned out that he and a group of friends were robbing a house. The alarm went off. Sirens began to happen quickly. They panicked. He started to run, and he ran through a plate glass door. So here comes his mother and the police bringing him to the emergency room. They sew him all up, and this time he kind of gets off without much trouble. It wasn't much longer when he turned 15, though. They found 
Tony, in a ditch. He'd been beat to a pulp. They thought he was dead. The police determined it was a drug bust gone bad. They brought him in. They put him back together. And he was lucky and he made it. But after that, it was just on a regular basis that he would show up at the emergency room. Yeah, one night he got into a fight and he said he didn't see that pool stick that smacked him across the face. And then there'd be the cuts and the knifing and the beatings. And it never was his fault. Never was his fault. His mom and dad were great people. They were professionals. They sent him to counseling. They sent him to a military school. They, they tried tough love. Tony was just headed for trouble. And so it was when he was 17. He was without a driver's license. He got drunk. He drove a friend's pickup truck and he jumped an Espinade and hit an SUV. Thank God nobody was killed. He walked away with just a laceration on his head. The other people were injured more than that. But this time it was serious. When they brought Tony into the, the emergency room, they were packed on this Friday night. And being just packed, the doctor, Leslie, had to finally say, look, just stick him in room C. You know, that's where Ezekiel Stevenson is with his granddaughter. Ezekiel Stevenson happened to be an African Methodist Episcopal minister, the AME Church. And he was a pastor in the AME Church, and he was there with his eight-year-old granddaughter who had broken her collarbone on a trampoline. And so they said, maybe Tony will mind his manners while he's in here. And they brought him in and laid him there on the stretcher. When he finally came to see and check on Tony, Ezekiel and his granddaughter were already gone. But they sewed him up. And when he was sewed up, the police were there. They put him in handcuffs and they took him away. And they wouldn't see Tony for five years. Five years later, it was on a Friday night. A man was being brought in with a gunshot wound. And here was Dr. Stevens along with his assistant, Laurie, and and they were there trying to get ready, and Laurie called down and says, We need an x-ray stat. And said they were working on this man when the x-ray technician brought in the, the portable x-ray machine and was starting to set it up when Dr. Stevens looked up, Dr. Leslie looked up, and when he did, he said his mouth fell open. And suddenly Laurie looked up and her mouth fell open. They looked at each other because there running the x-ray machine was Tony. Tony Bridges. And he looked so good. He was in his white starched coat. He had his name badge on that said General Hospital. And they just stared for a moment but had to get back to work. And they're working. And Tony took the x-rays and then he left. And when finally they had this man stabilized, Robert went to go find him to say, Tony, hadn't seen you in five years. How did this happen? And he said, well, it happened that night when I was here in the emergency room. When I was lying on the stretcher, Reverend Stevenson came over to me. He didn't say a word. But he put his hand on my head. He had such a big hand. It was so warm. And he helped for a long time. And I realized he was praying for me. I didn't think anybody could pray for me. I didn't think God would care if anybody prayed for me. But I'm telling you, I felt something. Well, you know, when I left, I went to prison two years. And while I was in prison, all I kept thinking about was Reverend Stevenson. I kept thinking about him and thought how God maybe still could actually care about me. I needed to change. And so I got out of prison at the end of two years on good behavior. Can you imagine that? I got out on good behavior? 
And when I got out, I went to tech college. I, I wanted to become an x-ray technician. And I just graduated three weeks ago. And I said, I want to come to work here at General Hospital where people helped me. I wanted to help other people. Can you imagine that, Doc? And he turned around to leave. And Robert said, I did find it hard to believe. But yes, I could imagine it. Because I do know the power of God's grace. What I would say to us all is no matter how broken our life, no matter what mistakes we have made, it begins by accepting responsibility, but also knowing we've not been separated from God. It is God who does still care and God who does still love in the midst of our brokenness, even to a thief on the cross. He cared. And so third, we're reading out of the book of Luke. And if you go back to the beginning of the book of Luke, you'll see that Luke has Jesus start his ministry in a synagogue. And he takes the scroll and he reads from it and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to set the prisoner free. Well, when you come to the end of the story of Jesus, that's exactly what he's doing. Setting the oppressed and the prisoners free. Thieves who've been imprisoned who are on a cross. And Jesus says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, I preach on this passage all the time at funerals. And when I do, I'm always referring to life after death. I say things like, today, it means Now, when you die, I believe you are born into the arms of God. Today, you will be with me. I believe it implies we will know each other on the other side. In paradise, the Greek word for garden is what it is. And a garden is a place of growth and change and new life. Well, I believe that Jesus was speaking to the thief in that such a way. But I believe he also speaks that message to us in the here and now. Those words apply to the here and now. For I believe Jesus is saying, today, today, you can be with me. You can know God and be in paradise. Be in a place where you are able to change, where it is beautiful, where you grow. When you and I accept responsibility... And yet know that we're not separated from God. Then you can hear a message today. You can be with me in a life where you're set free from the past and the mistakes you have made. You're set free to grow in a beautiful place. Life here and now. When, Robert, when Rich Luttrell went to the, to the wall, when he laid down the picture and he He laid down the the envelope, the letter. He had no idea what God had in store for him. God wasn't through yet with that healing. You know, every day when people come by the memorial there in Vietnam and Washington, D.C., and they pick up everything that is left at the wall. They catalog it and they stick it in a box and it is saved there at a place in Maryland. The man who takes care of it um, is Drury um, Felton. He too had served in Vietnam and he knows the pain from the war. 
And that day, whenever they picked all the things up, it just so happened that this picture and letter was put on the top of the box, face up. And Drury just happened to see it. And it caught his eye because he said in all his time there working as curator, he had never seen once a picture of a Viet Cong soldier left at the Vietnam War Memorial. And he saw the picture. And then he read the letter, and it so moved something in his soul. That on a regular basis, Jury was asked to go and give speeches about the memories at the wall. And he started using this picture and this letter to talk about the pain and the healing that had to go on for all these soldiers who served in Vietnam. And so he started talking about it for the next five or six years. But in the meantime, Jury was asked, would you make a book of memories at the wall? And so he did this book, and he included this picture and the letter. And so a friend got the book, a friend of Rich Luttrell's got the book, knowing he was a veteran, how important to him, just gave him the book. Rich flipped it open, and boom, there is the picture and the letter after six years. And when he saw it, he just knew God wasn't through with him yet. There was something more that he needed to be doing. Somehow he was being asked to reach out to this family. So he wrote up the story. He called Drury and asked for the picture back. They never give them back, but they did. He got the picture back. He made a copy. He wrote the story. He sent it to the Vietnamese ambassador in Washington, D.C. and said, can you help me try to find these people? The ambassador liked the story, so he sent it to the newspaper in Hanoi where he knew someone and said, would you consider running the story and asking if anybody knows these people? But now Hanoi had 3 million people. Vietnam had 80 million people. I mean, what were the chances? They ran the picture, they ran the story, and no one responded. Rich was not surprised. I mean, what would be the odds? But he had tried, and he felt he was being asked to try. But then there was this lady living out in the country in a small little village. Her son lived in Hanoi, and he wanted to send his mom a care package, some things just to help her make it living out there in the country. And so he took the care package, and what do you do when you send a package to somebody? You wrap it up in newspaper. And so he wrapped it up in newspaper, and he sent it to his mother out in the country, and she got it and unwrapped it. And when she wanted to unwrap it, she happened to see the picture, and she knew who the people were. It was her brother and her niece. And she took the newspaper and she walked straight down the road to where her niece lived. It wasn't too many weeks later that out of the blue, Rich received a letter. Dear Mr. Richard, the child that you have taken care of through the picture for over 30 years, she becomes adult now. And she had spent so much sufferance in her childhood by the missing of her father. I hope you will bring the joy and happiness to my family. I hope you'll bring joy and happiness to my family. Rich knew she was asking him to come. To forgive him? He made the arrangements and he traveled to Vietnam, a place he said he would never go back again. He made the journey to the small little village, and when he arrived, there was a group of people and one woman, now in her late 30s, maybe early 40s, standing off by herself. 
And he had been practicing, and he walked up to her, and he had a bouquet of flowers. And in Vietnamese, he managed to be able to say, Today I return the photo of you and your father, which I have kept for 33 years. Please forgive me. She took the picture, and she put it on her forehead, and she fell into his arms, her head against his chest as she sobbed and sobbed. And he was sobbing. And it took them a while before they could get control again. And finally, after they were controlled, she was able to say, this is the only picture I have of my father. And he told him, well, your father was a very brave man, a very courageous soldier, and a man of compassion, a man who respected life. And she said, we want to thank you as a family, for we feel you have brought the spirit of my father home. And we forgive you. And that day, Rich knew he could lay the past to rest, and he was free. The past is hard. We all do things. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ten words spoken to God on our behalf. So that today you can be with me where there is growth and learning and it is beautiful in paradise. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.